Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast. This week, we are back again with another episode focusing on mental health and the impact of mental health in the workplace. Um, so look, it's also worth noting that this is a safe space uh, and that all experience shared uh, are perhaps personal and no way intended to be a medical advice. Um, so look, on the show this week with me, I've got my usual co-host, uh, Adam Walker. Adam, good to see you. Great to see you, James. Real pleasure to be back, as ever. And we have former regular podcast guest and friend of the show, I have to say, Stuart (laughs) McCulley. Stuart, how are you doing? Good, James. Good. And you? Yes, I am very well. I mean, blinded by the lights from from Adam's screen at the moment. But as we say, we (laughs) we will get over that. We will get over that. So anyone tuning in to the YouTube version here, you'll be able to see what we're talking about. Um, But look... Gents, thanks so much for joining me um, today for this discussion. I guess, um, you know, we're in 2022, mental health in the workplace and mental health in general as a result of COVID has probably hit an all-time high of awareness, much like clinical research with the uh, regular pod. Uh, And I guess we're kind of here today to talk about people's experiences, um, et cetera, and and how how they're background has gone with mental health in, in the workplace so look Stuart we've got yourself back on the show give us a, a quick overview or recap as it may be of who you are what you do um, and, and a quick overview of I guess your background and prior experiences and challenges with mental health so do you want academic background or we just gonna stick with mental Stuart, health? you can you can treat us to whatever background you want Okay, so uh, I used yeah, to be like life in general. We don't need to. Yeah, do that. it's, it's not. Know, a, I, I used no to be a pole dancer, but you yeah. know. <laughs> 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 no, okay. So pharmacologist. Uh, I'm into drugs. Uh, did a degree PhD in pharmacology. Worked for companies like GE Healthcare, Shire, what is now Sinus Health. Created my own companies. Um, all of that's important in the context of mental health, because what that says to you is you can still have a life and be successful, um, despite the challenges that life will throw you. Challenges that life has thrown at me, I've had two nervous breakdowns, I suffer from major depressive disorder, uh, I have retinopathy, which means it's progressive and I can no longer drive. Uh, am I upset by any of this? Hell no. Um, what mental illness you know we call it mental health because if if it was mental health we wouldn't need to treat it so this is a a, a very kind of modern interpretation of life Uh, if it's mental illness then it's something that's treatable so i'm coming from the pharmacological perspective so yeah i i was a classic teenager i suffered from depression as a teenager we all do we have angst the world hates us. We hate the world. Nothing's fair. Uh, the problem was, uh, as I grew up, it didn't go away. That mm. that angst, that inability, and uh, so it, it, it's not just the emotional downs. It's the the physical inability sometimes to get out of bed. Where where do you think that came from originally? So talking about the teenage um, life, I guess that. A lot of teenagers, as you say, have that general hatred of of everything at, at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, was there a particular event, or how do you think that it came about in your own yeah circumstances and yeah the world for you at that time? 
What's interesting is my dad is undiagnosed because he's old school, you know, we just get on with life. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing it more and more now. And I saw it for probably the last decade or so when we spent a lot of time with my parents. Uh, it, 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 he's definitely the same personality as me with regards to the depression. And I have three children. They're 18, 16 and 14. And my middle child um, I am seeing the same traits in him as me. So there is obviously a genetic element to this. Mm. And what, if I can ask, what sort of traits are they that you're recognizing? And I guess what's, what has prompted you to to recognize them? Is it, has it, and like kind of has that taken you back? You're like, Oh, I I recognize that trait. How did the, how's that made you feel? And uh, feel, and what's prompted that, I guess, because clearly, you've noticed it so if i give the context of my wife she is the most stable person i've ever met uh yeah emotionally what you see is what you get but it's never a case of ups and downs and you know it's not cyclical she is just herself and Mm -hmm. has always been for the almost 30 years I've known her now whereas myself my emotions are all over the place you know it's it's almost I'm not quite manic depressant where I have periods when I'm good and then periods where I don't want to get out of bed I don't have the energy the motivation the need to do anything Mm -hmm. and also how you approach situations differs as well you are more prone to see the negative in things which is ironic because i I generally don't i see the best in people uh, and that in itself causes problems um but also from a from the emotional perspective the reason i went on to antidepressants 10 years 20 years ago 15 years 15 years now uh was because i i could see the cycles I if for weeks I would be high and I'd be really happy and then I would hit mm. a low and the low would impact everyone around me. It, it's not healthy. It, it's not good for them. <clears throat> well, I think also, you, you, you know, being a parent, you see it in your you see it in your kids probably more than you recognise it in yourself, don't you, Stuart? Because mm. I've also got two teenage two teenagers my daughter and, and my son <clears throat> and you can recognize characteristics as you say that that yeah. family that that family history runs through um in the manner in which you describe but i think also in the nature of the work that we all do being in and around the medical space we're probably thinking it and we've got our radar onto it anyway much more than many many would i suppose there is a self-awareness and, and, and a, a medical awareness that probably supports some of that as well isn't there I I think the beauty of where we're at with the field that we're in, Adam, is that you approach it from a scientific perspective. You know, I I don't approach it from an an emotive perspective. And I'm I'm now more self-aware than I ever had been because of certain periods of madness, as I call it, the madness of King George that I had. Mm. And during those periods, I knew something was wrong, but they were prolonged periods that had a significantly negative impact on my family. Uh, And you you have the ability as a scientist to step back and go, okay, so what is it? It, it, It's not that you are berating yourself. What you're looking at is 
there is evidence here that I need to, or there is information I need to be able to assess to say, this isn't normal, this isn't right. And the problem nowadays is if you think about the world changed with COVID, normal became different. Uh, and that has changed the baseline for a lot of people. So that goes back to your initial point, James, when you're talking yeah. about you know mental health issues. Those mental health issues that were buried really for most people because they just did their day-to-day -day work. Mm. The minute that they couldn't go to work and they were stuck at home, and if you're in a city and you couldn't even go out to a garden because you didn't have one, mm. all of a sudden you're faced with your own issues. There's nowhere to hide. There, no, there, was, there was nowhere to hide. People were locked down and ultimately weren't able to make their own choices. And perhaps their coping strategies that they may have had up until that point were taken away because you couldn't go out and get the fresh air that you once required. You couldn't have that flexibility of your day. We had one hour a day, didn't we? My goodness me, we couldn't meet with friends. We couldn't yeah. do this. We couldn't do the other. And, and, and our lives really shrunk they shrunk so small and became so small and so insular that that effectively, you know, you're you, you're putting people in straitjackets effectively, weren't we? We, we? we were imprisoned in our own homes. We were imprisoned in our own homes, but also it's probably the first time people have actually had to face themselves because there was nothing else. Yeah, there's no hiding place. No. You know, do you get on with your wife, partner, brother, sister? Or yeah. whoever you're locked up with, your I don't know, your housemate, your your siblings, or or actually, after a period of four, six, eight weeks, do you do you just want to run away? Yeah. Because I know there are plenty of people who who were really really challenged with those issues, and this is I think what you, what you what you're talking to is really when when the status quo has changed and when the rules are taken away, suddenly you've got no parachute, you've got no mechanisms by which you can. You can cope with that and that's what we're talking about i think james really isn't it so it, just before you jump in there james it, here's a funny thing from my perspective hmm. covid normalized us so everyone was going this is awful to me it was just normal wow. the lockdown uh, okay so as someone that's depressed and I've, I've seen it more and more now you are the kind of person that becomes insular you don't want to interact with people because it, it costs you emotionally. You put on a facade mm. so that you can be seen as normal and you interact. But actually what you want to do is just go to bed and curl up in a ball and not interact with the world at all. Wow. Take the when, social cues out of it. Go on, James. Yeah. So when, when did you first recognise this in yourself, Stu? Because I know that, you know, your background... Um, kind of outside of um sort of medical healthcare etc before that you were kind of fit active military you know which is very much a man up type of industry as it may mm. be um so i'm just wondering yeah to, to almost go back to when you kind of first identified it in yourself and thought maybe i shouldn't be feeling like this all the time um and yeah, what what the, the initial the initial signs were like for yourself and perhaps how you prefer to be approached at that time, because I've I'm quite happy to hold my hands up at times and say that I'm I've been ignorant to people with mental health challenges, etc. And it's just perhaps useful to know, you know, 
how people would perhaps be, you know, prefer to be approached about it. Is it a case of just leave them alone? Is it a case of speak to them? Is it a case of, yeah, anything else? What What's your opinion on, on that side of things um, for when you first self-diagnosed um, even before, yeah, anything else, I guess? 2004, I had my first nervous breakdown. Um, right. And up until that point, and that, that was at work, it was the best job I've ever had. I loved my job. Um, I just did too much of it. And I, you know, that's at a period where I was super fit. You know, I had 9% body fat. I was doing stupid amounts of training. Um, I was loving the job I did. I did too much. I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and I broke. Right. It was at that point I realized that um, there were mental health issues with me. Um, and interestingly enough, what I've seen is <clears throat> they've got exponentially worse with age. So the, the smaller the input, the bigger the result. Uh, and that was what caused me when I moved up here in 2009. So probably 2010 was when I started taking antidepressants. I was totally against them. I've always talked about uh, being pharmacologically altered to be socially acceptable that's how i see antidepressants mm. drugs i'm on at the minute metazapine you know i'm on high dose 46 mg per day uh these things make me pretty much comatose uh but i still manage to re react with the world even on these i i went to um clinics at the hospital over in Inverness where other people are on the same dose and there's nothing left of them. Well, how would I ask people to interact with me or someone in a similar position? Just treat us like a new normal human being. Don't shy from what or who we are. Um, don't be embarrassed to talk about it. The worst thing you can ever do is ignore something and not talk about it. See, everyone's going to be different so you know i hold my hands up here everyone will be different for me i would always say to people you know just just tell me what you think be who you are uh, and i i take that from the situation i saw years ago when a friend of the family she had had a miscarriage and no one would speak to her because they didn't know how to interact with her which made it worse. So they completely isolated someone that was in pain and suffering. And that's what generally people with depression are. They are people in pain and they are suffering. I, I, there's so many times people have said to me, yeah, but you've got a great life. Man up, what's wrong with you? Mm. It's not an external input that has caused the depression, it's internal. So whereas your life, your day today would be fantastic, not necessarily how I would perceive the world. To me, it's just the ultimate in grief and pain and the emotional, the emotions that I feel are not, they're not normal. You know, there is that depth of, pain and grief and self-loathing and that's why and I, i've posted it a couple of times more often than not that we know so little about people on antidepressants and especially when people come off antidepressants because we hate ourselves anyway why would we go and seek help 
when we don't believe anyone would want to help us. So it, it's it, it's a really complicated world. Mm. Can can I can I also follow on from what you said there, Stuart? Because I think James, you asked how how best to approach people, mm. and, and and really show some humility. And really, it's about the language that you use. Because I I can always recognise, and I'm sure you can, Stuart. You can always recognise people who've suffered, people who have that personal insight and just behave and speak and use language in a certain way. And it's whether or not you've done. I don't. I had a general question as to whether or not you've done any. Um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or any talking therapy because <laughs> because the way you speak it indicates to me that you probably have because you have that personal insight and the language in which you describe it the internalizing the externalizing the negative thoughts the mm. spiraling it sounds like to me you, you you've had those conversations but I'd, I'd like to hear more about that perhaps so what was interesting when i first moved up here i was suicidal the reason we moved up here was i'd had the nervous breakdown so that was 2008 so that was number two so i've actually had three um and i was in a really bad place and i went to see the gp and i said look i'm in a really bad place i'm suicidal um i have and here's the thing as well when you're suicidal it's not something you can control generally and i again i can only speak from personal experience mm. um you know i my poor wife had me on death watch you know, just making sure that i didn't do anything stupid or kill myself so i went to the gp explained what was going on i said yeah 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 uh, we'll refer you 18 months later 18 months 18 months later james the waiting list is now three years 18 months later uh, i got a referral to the mental health clinic and they gave me a trainee what my first almost anger is why on earth does it take bloody 18 months like surely your wife must have been absolutely it's, it's not, with that it, it's not really a recognized or prioritized condition and, and, and the I demand said, is the demand is so huge it is now yes pre-covid it was huge now the demand is even beyond that they can't actually hire enough mental health uh, practitioners to support the enormous tidal wave that has come on the back of covid never mind before it was always 9 12 16 18 months as you've described Stuart. i think yeah and it doesn't matter where you are in the uk in fact i i think it's it's probably quite similar all over the world but but certainly within the uk where, where we're talking about um those those waiting lists are, are exactly as you described that you is know, absolutely offensive isn't it i think i i, oh. did, I didn't I, I didn't know i'm shocked by that unless you have I, private health care i mean that's the other point you know if you've got private health care you can you can pay and you can see someone no but you're not talking about adam not up here can you not okay well no uh my my the only clinic that would be private that i could see from inverness i think is aberdeen which is a three-hour drive away yeah uh otherwise i'm looking at you know london yes i mean what what, I, what i'm aware of now is there are a lot more online services available through mind and various other charities which mm. have all spun out of the back of yes. you know the last two years but certainly there are you know there are helplines and i'm sure you'll refer to them in the notes um james but there are helplines out there but i know much more now that there is this type of interaction this isn't necessarily enough 
you know, a face-to-face Zoom is not going to be enough for some people. Sometimes you need to be in the room with with a practitioner and work through these things in person because there is a personal touch that's missing without that. I- if you want some insight, so I, I think the majority of my depression is genetic, but also um, I was an infant in Cyprus when the war broke out. And I was just hearing recently from my mum who uh, was starting to remember things where she would cuddle up. She was cuddled up next to me in the kitchen of their house in Limassol as the bullets were flying. Well, uh, I was brought up in the Northern Ireland Troubles. Uh, so used to that. Uh, I My parents were based on the army camp in Oma when the bomb went off. Uh, you know, the, you just you've got all of these kind of things that screw with your head. Mm. So if you already have a baseline of you are a depressive personality and you add all of these elements, also in a world where I went to 12 different schools as I grew up because my dad was in the Royal Air Force, so I never had any stability. The place I live here now, I've lived here 13 years. That's the longest I've lived anywhere in my life. Wow. And how did this all kind of impact, um, I guess, life at work? So, you know, that that thing of of mental health in in the workplace, because if you're going through all this at home, there's the internal um, challenges that you're facing and then the external probably challenges, frustrations, however you want to label that with 18 month waiting list for referrals for something which is pretty bloody critical. How, like, how did that impact kind of the your work life um, and home life, really? I, I just I can't imagine how it how you you dealt with it. If, if I mean, if you don't mind sharing, Stuart. Yeah. So the reason I shared about the different schools and the Royal Air Force background is what that taught me was how to be a chameleon. Mm-hmm. You are the person that the people there need you to be. But that comes at a price. So you literally are putting on an emotional and psychological facade mm-hmm. and you change for everyone around you. Uh, uh, and that then translates to work. So what then happens is when you're spending all the time, you know, my worst year traveling, 250 flights, I literally just spent my life in hotels, airports and taxis. What that means is when you come home, there is nothing left. And no, you literally come back and you release the facade. And that's when the depression hits and you just spend your home time in bed. Well, curled up in a ball. It's not that you're feeling sorry for yourself. You just don't feel you just for me. Depression is an interesting one, because what I often do is I, I know when things are getting bad. I can see it. And, you know, I could be going to bed at two o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, the, the, the phrase I use when I explain it to Kerry is I'm going to recharge my batteries because I know in the morning I will be an, a different person. Literally, it just yeah. takes that. And, you know, that's with the antidepressants. Yeah. So look, like, it's bringing us more up to kind of present day and, and how you now yeah. sort of manage things, um, Stuart, I guess. Just hearing what you said about the, the chameleon thing, and look, one uh, TV program that I've always loved is that SAS Who Dares Wins um, <laughs> with Ant Middleton, and they they almost they d- 
describe that character who blends in the the gray man i think they call it on the program Mm. um but again if you are suppressing who you are i guess you know clearly that is not a recipe for perhaps success and there's now a lot of talk about bringing your whole self to work so what are your thoughts on that and how it goes because sometimes you can bring your whole self to work but actually work aren't necessarily going to be overly impressed with what your whole whole self is on some cases so what what's your thoughts on on that side of things so first and foremost i'll say uh, when i had a team at sinius who i called the dark knights these were people i handpicked uh and they were we were a very good team and we were a very good team because we were just ourselves with each other and we trusted each other Mm -hmm. Uh, you know that was important we could just be ourselves they knew what and who i was and there was no facade it didn't cost me emotionally or psychologically to be with them which Mm -hmm. allowed me to um, help them succeed in their careers Whereas when I would go out to client meetings, that's when you have to put on the facade makeup, as it were, and and all that kind of stuff. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, Sorry, question. I've I've lost myself now. Just your thoughts on the whole bring bring yourself to whole self to work, really. What whether because I mean I'm a big advocate of that. I think that actually you should kind of just say two fingers up to somewhere you can't do that and find somewhere else that is better. Is my opinion, but as much, and again, this is obviously my personal opinion. Mm. As as much as we talk about these kind of issues, the corporate world is not ready for you to bring yourself to work because what they're expecting is a certain model of person that does a certain type of thing and interacts in a certain type of way. If I brought myself to a corporate world purely based on who I am, and I know this from experience, it doesn't end well. Mm. Whereas what I also know is I am still in contact with the people I worked with in 2000, 2002, for, you know, all the way through, because with those people, I was very genuine. The people that were close to me, part of my team, or I was part of their team, we were very genuine. So there is a part of me that doesn't have to have that facade Mm -hmm. when you put on the facade you become that corporate monster and that corporate monster has to comply with a certain stereotype and that stereotype will never actually be you and in the mental health world i i would always tell people to be cautious because despite the policies that corporations have they're not as embracing or forgiving as I would hope that they should be. Mm-hmm. But it's only through podcasts like this and the discussions that we'll get to the point where we have a comfortable and safe environment, like you just described this. Mm. You know, even now, people I talk to who are autistic and have been documented in their medical notes as autistic are still having issues in the workplace. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. The gifts that they bring. It's, it's first steps, baby steps. 
I'd love to follow on from that, if I may, because you, you know, the question was around bringing your whole self to work. And, and I think my experience generally has been to try and be as consistent personally and professionally, but there will always be things, I think, James, that we don't share, you know, there will always be certain aspects that are maybe oversharing. And, and one of the principles I take with me along the way is generally never be the story. In other words, don't be the drama. Don't make yeah. it about you because I don't like working with the people who make it all about them. <laughs> and I certainly don't want it to be all about me. I just want to get it done and, you know, minimum fast, just get it done. Yeah. But of course you have to be in the right headspace and you have to have the right tools at your disposal to be able to perform at that level consistently. And this is, I think what you're talking to Stuart, isn't it? It's those peaks and troughs of emotions and behaviors that sometimes play out in a work setting because someone presses your button or because they don't recognize what they're doing and the impact that that may have on your existing um, challenges that you may be faced with. But, but I also want to speak to, to the, you know, the neurodiversity piece that you also mentioned, because what I've seen certainly in a couple of recent employers that I'm working with and alongside is that that component seems to be far more embraced than it's ever been before. Yes. Yes. And in the last couple of weeks, I've been on a number of neurodiversity platforms internal to the companies that I'm supporting right now, where they're embracing change and they're actively seeking people with neurodiversity. Now, that could be ADHD, Asperger's, autism, yeah. any aspect of that, but also that's associated invariably with mental health challenges. And so it doesn't go separate neurodiversity, mental health. They're actually... To your they're question, all... they're actually opening the doors <clears throat> to the conversation. Now, I can't remember in a 25-year career where that's ever been the case, no, where people never. haven't been stigmatised for it. Never. I, and, yeah, to your point, uh, the, the world is changing a lot. And what's interesting is, you know, those of us that have, say, major depressive disorder may also have autism. I'm not saying I do have, but, um, yes. Uh, but it's, it's, it's all of those elements that tie together because they're, they're not standalone little tick boxes. They, they never were. And people aren't. People are not straightforward. You know, no. there are components of major depressive anxiety and, and, and generalised anxiety in which you can be high performing and high functioning <laughs> and yet on the flip side, 10 yeah. minutes later, be absolutely in a pit, aren't there? I mean, yeah. this is just how it is. And I'd love to hear, you know, maybe your experiences of that because you're clearly very high performing. You've been very successful in your career. And I think on the podcast when we previously spoke, you spoke about how being at your highest effectively you were at your lowest you know you were at your highest performing and yet you could not recognize how that th those two pivot points joined but that was uh, it, yeah yeah and you're spot on there so uh, my poor wife god bless her um there was a yeah i i didn't want her to come up here and be part of this video because uh, she's broke her ankle so it would you know by the time she i'd call her and you know 34 minutes later she would arrive over the 10 yard distance. Um, so no, get, getting back to your point, Adam, um, I, I'm getting a lot of contracts, you know, I, since I went uh, back into consulting, I've been really successful. And pretty much every day, even though I'm successful, if I don't have new work, I feel like a failure. So most people would look at you know, my book of works and my book of business and even the finances and bringing in thinking, wow, 
wow. And I'm like, yeah, today's been a fail because I, I didn't get more business and I didn't do this. And so, and take a step to the side. I've never believed in the fair word. Life is fair or life is not fair. It's never been part of my life. It's never been part of my vocabulary. So it's always been a case of you just step up and you do the work. You do what's expected or you do more than expected. I've always tried to do more than expected. And uh, to be honest, that has actually helped me because regardless of the mental state that I've been in, I get up, I do the work and I try and excel at what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the thing that's kept me alive it sounds like you're almost overcompensating to make up for those gaps that you feel yeah. you make that other people may pick up on but they're never going to see it because you're overperforming, you're over delivering you're exceeding expectations at every possible opportunity and yet in yourself that's the biggest conflict by the sounds of what you're describing yeah because i i, I can never achieve enough everything I do is never good enough for me. I don't compete against other people. I compete against myself. So, you know, I've I've set myself up for failure. But in in order to do that, sorry, James, where are you going? I was going to say, it seems like a a very much a double-edged sword, isn't it, Stuart? Mm. In In the sense that actually what makes you great actually then is the very same thing is the downfall and what actually then, then upsets you and, and puts you into a neg- negative state. So it's very, yeah. yeah. So, 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 I mean, what, so what uh, it almost on, on that point, I was going to ask you, you know, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. It almost seems that for yourself, they are <laughs> one and the same. Yes. I, I, it, it's, <sighs> there are days when I get up and I think, oh, what am I doing? You know? And then I realize I'm working for myself. Result. Uh, and uh, the only person that's annoyed with myself is me. Mm. Maybe I'm schizophrenic. Who knows? Uh, anyway, so you know that—that that was a throwaway comment. I, I'll take that back. Yeah, um, I—I love what I do. It's very niche, but I love finding. I love taking complex information and making it understandable, because I was always in a position where people would talk to me, and I never understood what they said. There was no context mm. and it always felt like I was being belittled. So that's where I've kind of come into that. I, I, I was a very slow developer, you know, times tables, spelling, all that kind of stuff. And then when I did develop, it's like, bang, all good. Segway, how did I used to relax? I used to sit in my car I would go and drive around the highlands and I had no destination but up here it's beautiful I've always been I've always found isolation certainly in in nature just grounding Mm -hmm. the challenge I've had recently is because of my retinopathy I can't drive so I've lost that aspect of it what I found Certainly in 2021, people of friends have been coming up and driving me around Scotland. And wow, you know, honestly, people are incredible. So, yeah. Amazing. Uh, interesting to hear, Stuart. Um, Adam, it looks like you uh, want to pitch in with a, uh, either a comment I, or a question there. I'll let you jump in. It's just a, 
as you were saying that, Stuart, and you were talking about um, earliest memories, I'm reminded of, you know, the inner child. And we always talk about the inner child in therapy, don't we? Which is, you know, you refer back to what you felt like as a kid and then how that played out later. It sounds like if you've, you know, if you've talked about it and you're happy to talk about it, that might have a, you know, a key component in the, in, in the you today versus mm. the inner child and the younger you and the person that broke out of that inner child. Yes, yes. Uh, certainly, you know, as a child in the Royal Air Force camps, we always had freedom. It, you know, as much as the moving around is a nightmare, you were always on camps that are surrounded by open land and I always had that freedom and that the ability to explore and that was always my safe place mm -hmm. yeah it's the reason I, I moved up to the Highlands of Scotland it, it you know when the shit really hit the fan with the nervous breakdowns I was looking for the escape of of nature and freedom and exactly that so yes well, I've seen certainly seen some of your posts on LinkedIn with some of the spots that you do head out to, particularly <laughs> Stu's fishing spot, which always looks like a, a good one. Um, now, on, on that note, Stuart, I guess, look, what are, uh, are your plans for the future in terms of continuing to, to travel, whether it's, you know, people coming up and offering their support with um, driving you around, fantastic, um, by the way, um, and, you know, maintaining a positive mental state you know what's what's next for yourself is there anything else that you're going to be looking to to do to continue on on that path or any tips that you would and tricks that you would give to others as a result of, of your own experiences i i would love to get back to some form of traveling you know I, i've traveled for the last 20 years of my life Obviously, two years of those, no one travelled. Mm. Um, I'd like to get back to that. As much as I despised it at the end, um, because I was travelling so much, I miss it. I miss the human interaction, despite having talked about, you know, the facades and what it cost me. Uh, I'm also, it, it's it's almost like another safe place for me because of the ability to interact. And I, I love meeting new people. Um, despite everything that I've said that might, have sounded negative the last year and a half i've spent with co-founders creating two new businesses on top of my Amazing. consulting business so mm. it's not that we sit still or you know this is all negative not at all what i've also found from the depression and how you react to it is that it gives you the ability to go above and beyond and be creative and that gives you, depending on who you are, it, it gives you a positive element in a world full of change and challenge, especially post-COVID. Mm -hmm. So I would always say to people, look at your strengths because you have strengths because you're still alive. The, the fact that you have major depression and you are still alive means you have coping mechanisms. Those coping mechanisms are exactly what you need to succeed in the business world. Use them to your benefit, but also help those around you. Never, ever turn anyone away. Look after people. I like that. Very, very good way to, to 
bring the show to a, a natural end there, Stu. And um, some good advice, I think. And um, yeah, particularly focusing on, on your strengths because, yeah, if you've got them, mm. utilise them. So I do like that. Uh, but look, as always with, with all of our podcasts, we do <laughs> like to finish off the show with a, a quick fire question round to get some snapshots of uh, advice from, from yourself, from someone that's, that's been there, face challenges, continuing to face challenges. And to be fair, it has been good enough to actually come on you know, a recorded show and share these with, you know, all of the, all of our audience. So look, I've got to give you a massive thumbs up for that one. Um, but look, I'll kick us off with the first quick fire question. Um, and that is taking you back again um, to kind of the early days where you started to notice, um, you know, yourself suffering with uh, mental illness, mental health. Um, you know, given what you know now, what would you have said to yourself at the time? seek help go see your gp have that discussion um nowadays there is so much that the medical profession can offer and it's not just antidepressants to adam's point it's cognitive behavioral therapy we have digital therapeutics now so we have apps that you can help uh, that can help you don't be alone you are not alone cool so just take take that first step just yeah, I like it. Cool. You made a great point about the patient app, um, ha apps that can help with mental health. And before I go on to the second question, there, there's one I just wanted to, to uh, mention called Wobot, W-O-E-B-O-T, which I've yeah. used in the past, which checks in with you through your phone on a daily basis. And you can just have like a, it's like an AI chat. How are you doing today? And you don't have to answer it. And if yeah. you don't, it'll come back to you maybe randomly in 10, 12 days time. And it might ask you a different question, but you just reminded me of that. Wobot, it's called, it's, it's very good. So um, our listeners always like to hear what what books and resources you, you know, our, our um, interviewees are using. Is uh, Are there particular tools and resources that you're going to, to refer to? Is there one particular <laughs> book that stands out for you? No. Uh, no, I, I honestly, um, I'm into sci-fi and fantasy and I use those as an alternative world where I can relax. So I don't use any academic or technical books, but I literally use those kind of fantasy books as my, my way of escaping. Yeah, escapism, it sounds like. Definitely yeah. taking yourself to a different place. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Cool. Well, look, you may have just answered my, my next question there, um, Stuart, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I was, I was going to ask you, look, what is your go-to, as it may be, stress reliever? Fishing. Hence, um, who's fishing pot? Yeah, so uh, west coast of Scotland in itself is a stress relief. So uh, obviously I can't do that myself now, but people drive me there. And I literally just sit on the shore and I fish. If I don't catch anything, it doesn't matter because I'm surrounded by mountains, openness, and it grounds you. Uh, and, and in that grounding, what I mean by that is you suddenly see how insignificant your worries are, your cares are, your stresses are and it just allows you to breathe and relax it's like it, it, it's my physical form of mindfulness shall we say mm. so? 
Nice. Well, having seen the pictures, yeah, I can see why it's um, a good little spot. And um, you, you Scots are often hiding the fact that there's a lot better weather up there than what we would all believe at times. <laughs> if you can deal with the midges at certain times of the year. Yes, yes, yes. So, so um, dare, dare I ask, um, to, to bring it to a close, um, what is the number one piece of advice you'd give to anyone experiencing uh, any early signs of difficulties with their mental health, Stuart? Speak to someone. Uh, honestly, the, the problem with this kind of condition is you feel that it's it's very personal to you and you are very alone and you are never alone. There are so many of us that are in the same position as you. Um, just speak to someone because you will be surprised at how much support and how much love and care you will get from people. And it sounds like you've had very positive yeah. rewards from doing that and being that open person that exactly. you are, clearly. Yeah. I like Brilliant. it. Thank you. Well, look, Stuart, um, as always, anytime I speak to you, um, it does bring a smile to my face because I think you're such a <laughs> character. Uh, so I just want to say, look, thanks again look, for, for jumping on. I've been very open in the past that um, these sort of conversations I'm not the most comfortable with, but I think that the fact that you are so open and, and who you are makes it easier for me, you know, even as, as the um, kind of host, and I'm sure, Adam, you feel the same. So I just want to say thanks very much again for jumping on um, the mental health version of the Huxley Morton podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you both.